0: So according to my calculation, we are on number five, part three of Mysteries of the New Testament. All right, so yeah, up until now, what have we talked about? We've talked about the, how the Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ, the church age, the rapture Holy of the Spirit. church, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and now we are on number five, the mystery of godliness. And again, we're going through, literally, we're going to be going through every single time the word mystery appears in the New Testament. So this might be overdoing it a little bit, but we're going to hit all the mysteries. <laughs> but they're interesting, and they're, they're obviously, I think, most importantly, one of the purposes of this is to generate a, an appreciation for... Living on this side of the cross, that we not only are saved, but we also have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We understand uh, uh, who the Messiah is and the specific details about his person and his work. That the people in the Old Testament, even the prophets and the angels before him, before he appeared, were trying to figure out the person of, of the Messiah. And so, and I always think about this with the indwelling Holy Spirit coming off of that is how much of a difference that makes having the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Because people in the Old Testament were regenerated by the Spirit, but they didn't, but he didn't indwell each and every, he certainly didn't permanently indwell anybody, I don't think. I don't think even David or the prophets were indwelled Permanently. I think they were indwelled temporarily for certain purposes at times, but in general, Old Testament believers, people who were saved in the Old Testament, did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so how much that affects our ability to witness and our ability to live god- godlier lives is something I've always thought was interesting. Because some of the some of the things that the Old Testament saints did, like Solomon, the, the life he lived, and it seemed to me like Solomon was a genuine true believer in the one true God. And if you look at the history of Solomon, he had like a thousand wives. I mean, he I mean that's incredible. Yeah, I mean he did just about every. And of course he ends up writing Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and it's basically he's teaching how vain all that chase was. I mean he just chased everything in the world at times and it just ended up in futility and that's how it is with us with anybody whatever you pursue in the world without God is ends up empty it just ends up futile and doesn't doesn't genuinely satisfy you that's why idolatry always just breeds more idolatry because once you chase an idol and you and you get you realize how it just doesn't satisfy you. You just move on to the next idol, and then you move on to the next idol, and then you move on to the next idol. And sadly, that's what every unbeliever does, is they live a whole lifetime of just chasing idols until the end of of their life. But as Christians, we can still, ourselves, chase idols. Even though we are saved and we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, we still have to guard our hearts and obey the Scriptures and, and do the things that we're called to do, or we will just chase things of the world instead of having our minds set upon the Lord. So that's a constant battle, but how much of that is impacted and helped by the indwelling Holy Spirit is something that I don't know. I'll never know what it it means to be a saved person without the indwelling Holy Spirit because we do live on this side of Pentecost. Alright, so number five. The mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So obviously, who are we talking about here in the mystery of godliness? Jesus
1: Christ.
0: Jesus Christ. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed. So obviously, we're talking about him taking on flesh, doing His work, and now we have proclaimed among the nations, that's what we're, we live in that time period now where we're proclaiming the gospel. We're proclaiming the person and work of Jesus Christ to the world, and He's believed on in the world. All those who God has uh, granted faith to, we believe, believe the gospel, and of course He's taken up in glory. He's ascended. He's not with us anymore. He will return. But right now, where is Christ? Seated at the right hand of God, He is seated at the right hand of God. All right. So the mystery of godliness is Christ in His work. In particular, in view here, the sanctification that results from salvation. Verse fifteen. Um, oh yeah, the verse previous to this, previous to First Timothy three sixteen. So you will know how you ought to conduct Himself. A true practical godliness can only occur after one is saved by repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I didn't have verse 15, that was the previous one to this, where the mystery is announced, but it talks, you know, it's a, doctrine always leads to um, ethics, or, or how we are to conduct ourselves. So we, we, when you learn a doctrine, and obviously you have to know God, you have to know Christ, you want to you know, sound theology as a necessity for a Christian. That's how you're saved is by believing in the deity of Jesus Christ and trusting in his work. And you, How do you know what his work is? Well, you got to know what the Bible says his work is. But ultimately what outflows that from a Christian perspective is that we are to take that and apply that to our lives. And so what's the mystery? It just says that by, the great is the mystery of godliness. The mystery is Jesus Christ in his work that's because what follows is that he who is revealed in the flesh was vindicated is that in the spirit really mystery? well I just like I said when we when we started today is that yeah, this is the word is used in this sentence and so Uh-oh. is this a mystery on comparison to like the rapture and the things probably not but we're just kind of going through each and every time but that. it says that the greatest the mystery of godliness and again he, he he certainly is somebody who was revealed in the Old Testament but not fully revealed, especially you go to Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, these places where you can just, looking back, you can read Isaiah 53 and say, oh, that's Jesus. But at the time, you you didn't know his name. You didn't know exactly his cross work specifically. You knew he was going to suffer. You knew he was going to, you know, all these things that were prophesied about. Born of a virgin, he was going to be God incarnate. But it wasn't fully fleshed out. And so this is Christ revealed fully. And so we just will go on to number six. Romans sixteen twenty five. the mystery of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. Many times in the Old Testament, it is prophesied that God would extend salvation and grace to the Gentiles. Nations is usually how it's put. Uh, example: Isaiah sixty-five one. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and in this verse it says, "My gospel." So I think this mystery is not only referring to God saving people by the preaching of the gospel. 1 Corinthians one twenty-one. But in particular, his outreach of unmerited grace to primarily Gentiles for a season. So that. Right here. That was Gracie Hunter. Gra- Hunter! Hunter! Hunter is Gracie. Stop. Hunter, be quiet. So I think this is just the mystery of the preaching of the gospel. You're a nut dog. You've lost your mind. Again, this is one of those that, yeah, not as impactful or not as, you know, not on the same level of a mystery as the indwelling Holy Spirit, the rapture, the Jews and Gentiles. But it is, I guess it kind of connects with number one, where... If you read the Old Testament, and you, you see this in the book of Acts, where the Jews were so resistant to the Gentiles receiving salvation, and Jewish believers, Jewish believers in Christ, even Peter himself had to be given a vision and things, because even though there's, you know, I'll read that Isaiah 50, 65, 1, where just there's places in the Old Testament that... It shows the purpose of Israel was to go out. All right, let's see here. This is Isaiah 65 verse one. I permit. This is God speaking. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, "Here I, here I am. Here am, here I am. Here am I. Here am I," to a nation which did not call on my name. And so you see, there's there's just one example of where you, you look in the Old Testament, you can see that it was prophesied that the Gentiles, that God was going to extend His work to the Gentile nations. And we've talked about this before. The I think the primary primarily intention on a human level, of course, everything that happens, God has ordained from His decreed. Anybody here know what the eternal the eternal decree of God is what that means the eternal decree oh, really? it is the decree is the plan of God and the Bible teaches that God planned everything from beginning to end that he, there's that everything is going along and he is controlling it and he is governing it and a lot of people struggle with that, because obviously you look at the world and the situation of sin and you think, you, you know, you you have to be careful and you don't want to say that God is causing evil, tempting evil, or anything else, but he's choosing to allow every act of evil that happens. And so in that sense, he's governing it. Governing it. And so although he's not the author nor prover of sin, he is using sin to accomplish his purposes. He's using it. He used it to bring the cross, to bring... I mean, that's clearly stated in Acts, that that God predetermined the cross to happen. And so the eternal decree is His, dec- his eternal plan from beginning to end. So there's nothing that doesn't happen outside of His sovereign control. And I, I always like to say, all the, all the good things happen, He directly causes. All the evil things, He chooses to allow to happen. But He chooses to allow to happen for a purpose. And so he's orchestrating everything, good and evil. He's the cause of good. He is the cause of evil in the sense where he could stop any evil act that happens. He has the power to stop any evil act. Yet he chooses to allow it. There's there's the activity of God in evil. He's not, he's not causing it. He's not tempting. He's not approving. And people will be judged for every act of evil, either on Christ or on yourself, on the, on the person. Yet, it cannot happen without Him allowing it to happen. And so that's that's how you understand God's using evil to accomplish His purposes. And a lot of people struggle with that. You know, you say something like God is responsible for evil in some sense, and they're just like, whoa, what? Mm-hmm. But he, you just have to understand, He can stop it if He wants to. But he's, He chooses not to, and He chooses to uh, delay judgment on that, for a time period because he's working out a good purpose in the evil. Again, we keep going back to the, the greatest good in the history of the world was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and it was the greatest evil in the world, too. But God turned it into the greatest good in the world, and that's how he works out his eternal decree. But there's no doubt that he's planned everything. There's nothing that happens by chance. He's not adjusting as he's going along. He The Bible says he's declared the end from the beginning. Before he created the world, Everything has been planned all the way up until the very last event. And why? Why can't he? Why can't he state prophecies beforehand that have come to pass? Because he's in complete control of everything. He's com- he's in complete. He's governing everything that happens, good and evil. He's governing it. Does that make sense? So I would say it's really, really helpful to know that to understand. That every good thing that happens, salvation, any truly righteous thing, is directly caused by Him. He, he's, he is the one who every good gift comes from above, but also that He chooses, He's active in evil as well, where in a sense He chooses to allow it and He could choose not to. If you just understand that one concept, you understand how God and the fact that he uses evil for good purposes it really helps to understand god and his and and opens up the scriptures quite a bit cuz cuz people a lot of times want to diminish his sovereignty to get him off the hook for evil or diminish his power to get him off the hook for evil or even to diminish his omniscience you're like well how could god be all loving and all powerful and and all this happens in front of it, and so people will try and and even genuine believers will try, in 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 good intention. But you don't need to get God off the hook. God doesn't need to get off the hook. He's fine. He can he can handle his on. He we we proclaim him as he is, as he discloses himself in the scriptures. And that he discloses himself as all powerful, all loving, in control of everything. But you understand that he. He uses evil for good purposes eventually and we may not know a lot of things that he does in our lives and the tough things he allows in our lives until later on but usually a lot of times you you will experience a season of, of difficulty of hard things and even evil things happening to you and you think you know first off you realize that you don't deserve anything good anyway and so you humble yourself and realize that he's gracious and merciful but he but you always, just always understand when you're in a tough situation, a tough time as a Christian, that he is not only aware of it, which he is, he's in control of it. He's orchestrating it. This is specific to you. It's and why? Because it's got a good purpose in it. And sometimes you know the purpose. You know, a lot of times I'll understand, you know, I'm trying to take control of my schedule. I'm trying to be I'm not being, you know, I'm doing the things wrong. And so I I just feel him Pressing in on that, and I know immediately because I've experienced enough times. Sometimes I don't have a clue. I'm like, Lord, I'm doing the best I can here. I don't. know What are you know? Is there anything else I'm missing here? And I don't know. And then you just say, Okay, you're you're over this. I'll find out later down the road what you're doing. I don't know right now. And there's a lot of times where I just I really genuinely don't know. I'm trying as hard as I can, but a couple of weeks go by and you're like, You look back, okay? I didn't see that hidden evil that was in my heart. There was something in there I didn't know about that he was pulling out and demonstrating. A lot of times. When he puts you in the fire a little bit, it'll it'll bring to the surface things in your heart that you're, that you're depending on other than him. And so All right. Ding ding ding. Oh, is that the rain? Yeah, I reacted to
1: that. Didn't you see that? Uh, action? So he knows
0: he knows, he the, knows the weather it'll alert. Sound the phone may be uh, <laughs> he knows the weather alert. You need to put it on vibrate so they does not freak out.
1: Well Abigail said tiger. When he the same
0: thing? He, he just goes crazy as soon as he hears that ding. That is crazy how they can know that.
1: What is the weather forecast?
0: <laughs> I know. Alright, number seven. The partial temporary hardening of Israel. All right, this is Romans chapter 11 verses 25 and 26. Paul writing, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. There's the word so you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Now, this mystery has to do with Israel being partially, temporarily hardened during the church age. When over, the rapture occurs, and God goes back to dealing with them, purging them, to the remnant during the tribulation. Notice three clear things from the text: one, dis- distinctions being made between Israel and Gentiles. Still, so although we, we talked about the first mystery where distinctions in the body of Christ are, there are still distinctions, but they're meaningless. But there's still distinctions being made. And so, so you talk about there's a, there's a hardening to the people of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So you see, there's still distinguishments distinctions between. Jews and Gentiles, yet in Christ they're they're meaningless. There's no, there's if that makes any sense. He's broken down the barrier, but there's still ethnic distinctions being made here. and This is obviously after they rejected uh, their Messiah. To a partial hardening of Israel, individual Jews are still currently being saved, and most importantly the hardening of Israel is until, clearly indicating it is temporary. And will end at some point in the future when all Israel will be saved. Acts three, twelve, and nineteen verses. Acts chapter three, verses twelve and nineteen and twenty show Israel's future. Total repentance is what triggers Jesus' second coming, and you can see that at the end of the verse here. Jacob is clearly Israel, and so you see that. So these. So that when all Israel is saved, the deliverer. Who's that? We knew this, though. That's Jesus Christ. So it's not well, mystery, right? We know it because we've studied Romans, but this is a mystery that is still that is revealed in the New Testament. Okay. But the reason we talk, we talk about it quite a bit, obviously. Okay. You see, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and that's Israel. And so that's the, that's the, the final salvation of the nation of Israel, when he removes ungodliness from them nationally. Right now, yes, individual Jews are being saved. That's where it says a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the... So when the Gentile, the church age is over, God will go back to dealing with Israel. again. All right, number eight, the mystery of his will. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven, in the heavens, and things on earth, on the earth. I think this mystery, although mentioning the summing up of all things, which might lead to believing it is eschat- eschatological in nature, is more broadly dealing with the Church Age in general. We, during this Church Age, have the privilege of understanding how our sins are forgiven. Verse seven because Christ's work is completed and recorded explained in scripture. Those in the Old Testament had veiled knowledge that God would one day atone for their sins but we know that how he did that. Also from the first advent of Messiah to his return in the future that time period is referred to as not only the church age but latter days as well. And so again there's more disclosure of God's will to us now. Again, we live in a time, I mean, we might be living in real times of this being fulfilled. A lot of these these final things being done. I mean, I look over in the Middle East right now and it's just almost incredible to watch what's going on with. With we talked we talked about this last week or maybe the week before with legitimate talk about a peace agreement, legitimate talk about a third temple, legitimate talk about or little legitimate alliances between nations that are written about that never had alliances before. We don't know times or dates or anything else, but if ever the table is set, it seems like it's getting set. All right, number nine. Christ is the head of the church, Ephesians 5.32. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. This mystery in context is comparing how husbands are the head of their wives as Christ is the head of the church, verse 22. It talks about how the head loves and cares for the body just as husbands should love and care for their wives. Christ also, in this way, cares personally for his spirit through His Spirit, for each member of the body of Christ. This is a clear refutation of the Pope being the head of the church. In fact, unless the Pope is before all things and holds all things together, Colossians 1, 17 18, he is not the head of the church. If you think he is, you don't believe clear scripture. So this I didn't write all those scriptures down, but right before the 532, from 22 to 32, it's making the comparison of how, you know, talking about how husbands are the head of their wives, but we're, you know, we are, you know, we are the head of the households, no doubt, yet we do that as we love and care for our wives, and it talks about how Christ is the head of the church, and then he is taking care of us in the same way. And then, of course, I made the point that I don't know how you can possibly say that the Pope is the head of the church, when it's clearly stated several times in Scripture that Christ is the head of the church. And if you think a man who claims to take the position of Jesus Christ as the head of the church is a humble man, well, you're living on a different planet than I'm living in. And also he's called Holy Father. It's humility. not. All right. So we're moving along pretty good now. The mystery of lawlessness, number 10. 2 Thessalonians 2.7 and Revelation 17.5. Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2:7 and for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way in revelation 17:5 and on her forehead and on on her forehead a name was written a mystery babylon the great the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth and i connected these scriptures With their mysteries, as I think it pertains to the same idea, the full expression of iniquity. In 2 Thessalonians, it speaks of the fact that sin rules and reigns much of the creation right now, but even that is being restrained. When God removes all restraint, which in my opinion is halfway through the tribulation period, three and a half years into the tribulation period, the man of lawlessness will be revealed, and all hell will literally break loose the great tribulation. So the tribulation period is broken down. It's called the tribulation period, but it's also the last three and a half years. is called the great tribulation. That's when things go really, really bad, when the Antichrist sits in the temple. We have no idea in this present time how much God restrains through common graces evil, but in the future the full expression of mankind's civilness will be realized. In the Revelation scripture above, it refers to the final one world religion created in the tribulation period. Essentially, all other religions outside of true biblical Christianity are the same now, anyway. Human achievement. You do something for salvation, but there are divisions among false religions right now. Although ecumenical desire is increasing dramatically, you can see that with just what's going on recently with the Pope signing accords with Islamic leaders and Everybody's just saying, let's just form this one. Even the Jews are talking about building this third temple. They're talking about building, not specific necessarily to Judaism, just they want it to be a, a world temple, a temple for all religions. And so you see this ecumenical environment is, is certainly another sign that it could be getting close. But at that time, they were all joined together to form this one religion, thinking this is a solution for world peace. And the anarchy the rapture creates ultimately it fails, and is destroyed by the antichrist himself when he claims himself to be God. But again, I think these two mysteries reveal the full expression of iniquity now restrained by the true and living God. We've talked about this many times about how we have not. Only we talk, you know, a lot of people say, "Well, how could God allow so much evil?" and and the, the truth of the matter is, we have no idea how much he restrains. Yeah. That how, if if left to just our own desires without without common graces like government, um, family, or just self-preservation in, in itself, um, just a lot of people just keep from doing Crazy things, because they don't want people to think bad things about them. So even pride keeps you restrained in some senses. But where, if he just removes, his, and that's what happens when God hardens a heart, when he turns somebody over, is he removes his restraint. And when he removes his restraint from your life, it gets real bad. And it doesn't matter who you doesn't matter who you are. If God removes his presence from your life, is it's the one thing you don't want to have happen. But as Christians it's impossible now. you know he can still you know turn he's, he indwells every believer. he never leaves us or forsakes us yet he can take away his presence and his joy in and his, and his uh, blessing in your life for disciplinary reasons, but it's it's purposeful. But unbelievers, are restrained by God in general senses as well, and and I think during this tribulation period, what causes most of this is the restraints that God He removes that in the fu- in the full expression of evil is allowed to to manifest itself, especially during that last three and a half years. No idea how horrible that's going to be so but but yeah it's just what is called the mystery of lawlessness and so that's the best not good. not good yeah not a not a peachy subject but it's it's a good thing to know and to understand um that god's grace is more than we can ever possibly imagine and you know and for us you know even as believers we can complain about certain things and for us unbelievers that's all they ever do is is if you you know you start talking to them about christ a lot of them will just start having questions and challenges about well you know how could god allow this and this happened to me how could god allow that and what they don't, first off what we and everybody doesn't understand is is if god dealt with each of us individually according to our evil it would be bad it would be eternally bad and so that's the first thing i always say to somebody who says that early. It's a good thing God doesn't judge your evil instantly, you know, because they'll look at somebody else and find somebody else worse and say, "Well, how could you? How could God allow that to happen?" Well, like I said, think about the worst thing you've done. How, it's a good thing God allowed you time to repent from the evil things that we've done. So we always God is more merciful than we could ever possibly really understand, and we are wick, more wicked than we can possibly understand, and that's just the reality of it and it's a humbling thing it doesn't it's we don't mean that we don't want this to bring us to despair and to micromanage our own lives because i can do that and we all can do that and satan will always try and he's called the accuser of the brethren he's always trying to bring you to despair and he's always got something to use that's the sad thing there's demonic temptation and demonic accusation there's always some truth in there because we are we're we we fall short yet we understand that God has forgiven us all our sins as believers, and 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 He He also understands that we are still in the flesh and we are still going to sin, and yet we don't intend and we don't willfully do it, but we still. It's a it's a it's the ultimate goal. I think is it humbles you to to understand how merciful God is, and so when we start to get prideful, and I do this frequently, I just like okay, I just got to just immediately put the brakes on there because. God will remind me in some way how merciful He's been to me by maybe removing that mercy for a little bit. So that's number 10. All right, number 11, the mystery of God. All right, again, we're just dealing with this every time the mystery is used, and it's used here. And this is the good one. So, but this is Revelation chapter 10, verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, When he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. This mystery is referring to the time when, at the end of God's judgments poured out on the earth in Revelation, God will be fully revealed in the revelation and personal return of God himself, Jesus Christ, in his setting up of the millennial and eternal kingdoms. All of Scripture points to its culmination when we will understand God and his work more completely. He will be present and his plan will be accomplished. All will fully know him, either in glory or judgment. In context, it it might also refer more specifically to the judgment of the day of the Lord prophesied through Scripture, now fully revealed and accomplished. So, I, I tend to view this mystery as... A good thing, where the because we still, I mean, we, as much as God has revealed to us in His scriptures and how we know Him through Christ, and we have and we look at scripture and we understand that He's going to return in the kingdoms, and we won't know what that truly is like. And we can imagine heaven, we can imagine the glorified resurrected body, we can think about these things, but we won't know it fully. And, and, I, and we certainly don't know God as we will know Him then because we'll be in sinless bodies and be able to be in direct fellowship with Him. And so when the mystery of God is revealed, I just see that as a way of Him wrapping everything up. And as I, as I wrote a, noted there, everybody's going to fully know Him, believers and unbelievers. We'll know Him in glory and, and praising Him for all of eternity for His mercy on us, but unbelievers will know him fully in his judgment only, no more no mercy anymore. They'll understand fully what they rejected every single time they rejected either his general revelation or special revelation in the gospel. There will be nobody appealing when they're when they're when they're sent to hell. There's nobody who's going to be saying this isn't fair. They're going to hate it. They're going to be gnashing their teeth. They're still going to hate God. It's one of the reasons why I think hell is eternal. Because people keep sinning in hell, they keep hating God. If anything, their sin is manifested more. But they will—they will not have anything. Uh, I don't know. They—they they won't be appealing even in their own hearts. They'll understand their own wickedness at that point. And so God is vindicated in every single way, and He's vindicated in His wrath. God is glorified in His wrath, and a lot of people struggle with that. Why did God make it? to be a world and a plan and a future that a lot of people are going to be ending up in eternal judgment? I've had that question. I still have that question. But I think the answer is God will be glorified in His wrath on sin. He will be vindicated and and, and it will be a glorifying thing to Him. It's just hard to deal with because we, number one, we deserve to be under that wrath as well. And so uh, it's always... There's no condescension kind of towards people who are gonna end up in judgment, because we deserve to be there too. And so I think that's the toughest thing to fully understand that. But I believe with all my heart that we will fully glorify he'll be fully glorified in his in his wrath on sin at the end of time. All right. So the next time the, or the mystery of the seven stars and lampstands, number twelve. So again, we're just kind of, we're going to read right through this and see this is one of those mysteries that's immediately explained. This is Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, this is Christ talking, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The mystery here is immediately explained by Christ as the seven stars being the seven angels, and that's either lead pastors or an actual protective angels, and the lampstands being the actual churches. Most people believe that that is referring to the lead pastor of these actual churches where these letters are written in the beginning of the book of Revelation, I tend to agree with that, that these angels are not angels, they're actually pastors that these letters go to, but it's kind of speculation. And on a side note here, this is one place where I do believe in the plurality of elders in, in the local church. You know, we've talked about this where I believe that this, the proper setup biblically is have more than one pastor and then you have deacons underneath. You don't have one pastor and then deacons. You have multiple elders, maybe even two, three, four, some that have ten, you know, depends on the size of your church, obviously. But this is where an argument does come in on the other side where they, they say, if these are, if these seven angels are the seven pastors, well it does seem to have that Christ is writing letters to the leaders of the church. and, and it does appear to be uh, you know one person. And I, and I say, okay, that, that is a point on their side. I still think in, in light of all of Scripture, that that's a pretty weak argument and this is and even if you have a plurality of elders properly in my mind, you still would likely have a leading teaching pastor, you know, but that doesn't mean that these people that are being written to don't have elders alongside of them that this is just the one lead pastor or teaching pastor. Uh, but this is one argument that they make that is a legitimate argument they make on their side. All right, number thirteen. The next two verses convey the mystery as being the content of the gospel, Colossians 4.3. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open a door, open to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have been imprisoned. And so in Ephesians 6:19, I and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me and the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. And so I think that these two verses where the word mystery is used is talking about the actual content of the gospel. All right, pop quiz. What is the content of the gospel? Verses
1: of the Bible, right?
0: No. Remember, we went through this a couple weeks ago. Person and work of Jesus Christ. Oh, oh,
1: we're talking about gospel.
0: The gospel, yeah, the content of the gospel. So the content, the gospel, the gospel is this: the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who he is? He's God incarnate. He's truly God, truly man. And his work: he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for the sins of people, and he was raised from the dead. And that is the so that's the the person and saving work of Jesus Christ. And people become Christians and get saved by believing that they believe with their heart that He is God. I think that's the that's the crossover point. I think of going from darkness to light is you just go from not believing Jesus Christ is the one true God to believing that Jesus Christ is the one true God. That's what I think regeneration does, and then you, then you understand, of course, that His atoning work upon your behalf and you put all of your hope in His atoning work, His perfect life, His death for sins, you don't have any hope in your own righteousness, because God has also granted you repentance. When God grants you repentance, that's the humbling of the heart, that you understand like, oh boy, I'm in trouble. So that is the Gospel. And it's not hard, it's... it's God has made the Gospel and the plan of salvation very simple. But the gospel is the only thing that has the power of God to save people. And this is why we are adamant that Roman Catholicism is a false religion, and any other deviation from from the gospel that adds any kind of self-righteousness doesn't have the power of God behind it. There's only one gospel that has the power of God, and that is the the person and work of Jesus Christ, and you put all of your hope in him. None in yourself, because you have no hope in yourself. You have anything you offer God for salvation is tainted by sin and will not qualify, because He's perfectly holy and there's not one single sin that you could add. If you bring one sin to your merit, it's disqualified before a holy God. And and so if you if you think if you think if you're self righteous in any way any way religiously. It means you don't understand your sin or you don't understand God's holiness, one of the two. Because if you, if you get that, and that's what I think God does when He grants repentance, He opens your eyes to who He is, to who the true and living God is, Jesus Christ, and understanding eventually of the Trinity, but also He opens your eyes to your own wickedness. That's what repentance does. It shows you who you are, where one of the wicked things about human nature is we can justify anything we do and so we can make ourselves not seem to be wicked to ourselves because we can do that in our minds about ourselves but when god shows you who you are without any of the filters yeah i think that's what really terrifies you into saving faith all right number 14 we're going to finish today in the next week well the next couple weeks i'll let you pick i got many others in here i'll let you all pick them in the next four verses, the mystery is God's truth knowledge, in particular, New Testament truth revealed in Jesus Christ that was previously hidden. Colossians two two that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ Himself. First Corinthians two seven, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. 1 Timothy 3.9, But holding to the mystery of the faith, and then I put in parentheses, content of the revealed truth with a clear conscience. 1 Corinthians 4.1, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So again, I think this is just talking about God's truth and knowledge, and in particular, the, uh, the full revelation of God is found in Jesus Christ this is why one of the main reasons I oppose any, any further revelation that people proclaim whether it be somebody like Joseph Smith or Muhammad or somebody who starts a major false religion or just somebody saying that God's speaking to them it's because God. the Bible is clear in Hebrews 1 that the full revelation of God is Jesus Christ there is nothing else to add to him he is, the, he is God in the flesh, and so there's nobody. You, if you can come up with information about God more than Jesus Christ has revealed, you're 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 walking on some thin ice there. So once you know, we have the prophets, and the, you know, and everything was building up to Jesus Christ. But then the fullness, the full revelation of God was is is found in Christ. All right, and number 15, in these last two <clears throat> verses, the word mystery means not understandable. So this is where we actually get to the meaning of the word mystery, like we commonly use now, is the mystery, oh, it's, you know, something that's mysterious. And um, so it kind of actually applies here. Matthew thirteen eleven, Jesus says, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Here it refers to spiritual truth revealed to some but withheld from others. A lot of people don't understand the parables that Jesus spoke in. They they'll teach that well he teaches in parables to make it easier for people to understand. That's actually the opposite. Jesus says that he speaks in parables to hide truth from people. That he speaks he speaks that way to intentionally keep truth from people because and he does that in response to their unbelief. And so the parables are not something that he he uh, speaks in to make things easier to understand. He just, that's what he says himself. That's what he just said there, that he is, you know, they're asking that question about why do you speak in parables, I, I think, if I'm remembering right. And he says, well, he's, he makes these mysteries, and he explains the parables. But he, God in general, if you understand this, it's good to know that God reveals, the only way anybody can ever understand spiritual truth is if God reveals it to them. and that if, Of course, that begins at salvation. This is where I'm absolutely convinced, scripturally, that God makes somebody alive sovereignly. That it's, it's not like all of a sudden somebody hears the gospel, and they're, by their own will and by their own flesh, they, they come to understand. Because the Bible says the natural man does not understand, understand the things of God. It only happens by the Spirit. And so you, you, the Spirit has to be the one to reveal who Jesus Christ is in a heart, or else they never will believe. Because why be the love of sin? Everybody loves their sin so much that they they refuse to believe who Jesus Christ is and anything else. But even after you become a Christian, and this is why I say you know any Christian has the indwelling Holy Spirit, and if you have a Bible and the indwelling Holy Spirit, and you genuinely want to understand the Word of God from your heart. You ask God to give you wisdom on the scriptures. He will do that. Because the Spirit is the one who gives you understanding to truth. Uh, Grace, you already got revved up with a rain dinger. <laughs> well,
1: he does that every time I walk in over, he's like, er, er. He does. He acts like he's going to attack her yes. when he comes out of the rain. He goes like that.
0: You got, it's, I haven't seen you wear a hat in so long. It's just <laughs> interesting.
1: You're such an angry boy. They had something on Inside Edition last night, I don't know, I I taped it, I don't know if it was last night. It was about the two ministers that had humongous congregations, and they were so blatantly, they had like three jets, and Mm -hmm. they had mansions, I've seen one of them on TV, I've seen both of them on TV, and they went with Inside Edition and interview, tried to interview them. You know, Why do you think you should have these jets to fly around? And and the, their answers were so bad. I mean, it was like, well, I deserve
0: this. Yeah. False teachers is what oh, they are. I'd be interested to see who they
1: horrible. are. If there was anybody that would watch that show yeah. and think anything good.
0: Yeah. I know. That's the thing. You're right. I'm glad you could pick that up. Is that pride? You know, the oh first yeah. first sign of a false teacher who claims to teach the Bible, and if they have pride, I even learned it. I was like a week into my faith, and I was tricked a few times. But I was sitting there thinking, man, that guy's got a lot of pride. I, you know, I've been humbled here, and that's the first indicator. And yes, if people think that they, I
1: wish I could the
0: names. Yeah, when you watch it, let me know. It's a dollar of dollars a guy. He's got a bunch of jazz. He's a false teacher.
1: gray right and old and then the there's dark hair and older and they get together for lunch
0: occasionally. Oh, it's probably... Um, I think
1: Texas maybe? They were, yeah. you th- have seen him before.
0: It's probably uh, Copeland, Ken, yeah. Kenneth Copeland. What's he look like? He's got the dyed hair, dyed brown hair and he's older looking. Yeah, that's him. That's yeah. Him. Yeah, he's that guy. Is the, he is the worst oh. of the worst. He's the worst of the worst. I
1: mean, he, he was getting to his jet and they were trying to interview him and he goes... Tell me why you don't think I deserve this. I know. She's like,
0: what? You ever heard him preach for five minutes, you would throw up. Yeah, I think I it? Cause I he, didn't like it at all. If ever a man is possessed by demons, it's that guy. He's got yeah. a look in his eyes. Oh, he, yeah. I don't know. you got to be so... Stupid. I don't know why. You give, I mean, it's one thing to...
1: No, stupid on that
0: But he's a controlling guy, too. Just, it's just... He's the stupid. worst of the worst.
1: Yeah, he's the worst of the worst.
0: But yes, if anybody thinks that God told them to get a private jet, yeah, I'd put a big red flag on that.
1: Yeah, that was couple of The other guy was gray-haired fat and older.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't want to be, you know, I, you know, I shouldn't. There's a couple people I really struggle with praying for. I really do. And we're, we are called to pray for our enemies. We're called to pray for whoever. But there's a couple people I just really, and Kenneth Copeland is one of those. I oh. just have a hard time because he's such an abuser. Of scripture. Sure. He's such an abuser of people. And I just, I was just hearing things. There's a I can't imagine uh, like the Pope Francis and, and Kenneth Copeland would be probably two of the people that are alive today that I would not want to have to account for before a whole, because yeah. they're using, you know, talking about Copeland, he's using God's word to, oh. to rich, enrich himself.
1: You should
0: see this hat. Oh, it. I know. He's got mansions and mansions. And people like, um, you know, I wouldn't put Beth Moore in the same level as Kenneth, I mean, not, he's, she's not that blatant. I don't think she's a good teacher, and she may be a false teacher. A lot of people who, but she's very, very wealthy. She's got, she has several homes and things. and But, you know, I'll say this is truthful too. As much as I love, and you know, I love John MacArthur. He's he's wealthy in the sense of a human level, at least as far as I know.
1: He doesn't know.
0: But no, I agree. I mean, you know, we talked about this before. I don't. I don't. He's just But he's a. He's a. He's a saved man, obviously, and he's a lover of God, and he's benefited many people by God's grace. Oh, yeah. But one of his weaknesses, in my opinion, is that he has allowed himself to accumulate yeah. more money, and so it's a difficult thing. But yeah, with people like Kenneth Copeland, uh, and who don't even who who are just absolutely full of pride and don't even pre, You know, they're false yeah. teachers, blatantly. He may to the it does. I'm glad that you see that because that that shows you that the spirit is, you know, teaching you like, hey, that guy's a wolf, um, mm-hmm. and he is. He's a wor. He's bad. It's, it's it's a shame what he you know what he's able to get away I with.
1: Inside Edition, over there. they have a i sure. and and just see if you can
0: see. Yeah. Oh, I be, bet Benny Hinn was the other one. Gray. He had the gray hair. Gray hair. Sure. And he's the other. Yeah. You know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> bad. Yeah. yeah. All right. And the last one, First, first yeah, we're almost done. First Corinthians 14, 2. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. We're not going to get into the tongue issue right now. <laughs> I know. But that just means in that context, not understandable. All right. So we did it. We went, I knew it was going to take at least two or three sessions, and then next week, and then whenever the next couple of times, I'll just let you all. I got a whole stack of stuff in here, and you can just let me know. I'll read them to you, and you can let me know next week what you want to do. We got a bunch of good stuff. We got biblical problems with infant baptism. Who is Romans one about? Salvation by the will of God's Scriptures. Don't make yourself at home. Look up and out. These three things to do continually. All right, maybe we'll do that one. That's a good one to always do. You're getting your now. Oh, yeah, we got to do the haircut now.